Every piece of jewelry holds its secrets. Stories of love and separation, legends and curses. Discover the Voice of Jewels, a podcast from L'Ecole, School of Jewelry Arts, supported by Van Cleef and Arpels. Unveiling the stories and secrets behind history's most fascinating jewels. Soon available on all listening platforms. If you've been watching TV and movies lately, you might be getting a sense that the restaurant industry is in some trouble. Or at least it's in kind of a slump. First, there was the film Boiling Point. Then there was the FX show The Bear. But the one that really stands out to me is the recent film The Menu. It brings us to a fictional world's best restaurant that's located on a private island. The menu is really a satire of the world's real best restaurants, and that means it has everything you would expect. It has very wealthy diners. It has a chef that's revered as a king. Welcome to Hawthorne. Here we are family. Yes, chef! We harvest, we ferment, we gel. We gel. We gel. But in this one, diners very quickly realize that their death is also on the tasting menu. We now offer you a 45-second head start. <laughs> okay, 45 seconds starts now. I watched the menu because this big news broke, and I was trying to understand it. The news was that Noma, the world's actual top restaurant, is closing. But why would a place like Noma close? It's world famous. It costs up to $1,500 a seat. It's not like they can't afford to stay open. We've talked about Noma on this show before. It's in Copenhagen, and it's led by chef René Redzepi, who's a kind of ill-tempered genius. He's a founding chef of something called New Nordic Cuisine, which is meant to bring Scandinavian cooking to its purest form. Like, it'll put locally foraged sea buckthorn on the menu, or elk shot in a forest nearby. Over the last 20 years, Noma's become a template for what it means to run a fine dining restaurant. So when Redzepi announced it was closing, a lot of people were trying to figure out why. The really interesting reaction, I think, with the Noma closure was that I think news editors were, were really shocked. And sort mm-hmm. of lifestyle editors wanted to comment on it. I don't think anybody in the industry was remotely surprised. That's our restaurant critic, Tim Hayward. He actually has a restaurant and bakery of his own in Cambridge, England. So he's kind of an outsider and an insider in the business. When your brand is built up as being all about a kind of incredible purity of artistic integrity about food. Yeah. Uh, and, and everything is so unbelievably, wonderfully cerebral and honest and pure. And you reach a stage where nobody can get to you mm-hmm. and nobody can afford to eat there. Mm-hmm. And the waiting list is full of people who fly in with helicopters. Right. You've created your own monster, at which, at which point pretty much everybody will have to say, Look, I can't hold this up anymore. Right. I don't want to be turning up every day to make an identical menu for, you know, people I I might have trouble justifying morally. Tim thinks that, just like the chef in the menu, René Redzepi is over it. Which begs the question, what about all these restaurants that have modeled themselves after Noma? The second-tier fine dining places, the ones closer to you, that are hoping to get a Michelin star or hoping to keep one? Tim thinks they're in over their heads, too. And today, we spend the whole episode talking with him about it. 14 Courses is immeasurably stupid to anybody who's not a Michelin inspector. Restaurant bills have never been higher. Inflation and the cost of living crisis are driving prices up. 
And Tim thinks that fine dining can't afford to model itself after Noma anymore. The industry needs a different model or the whole thing will collapse. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Tim, welcome back to the show. It is so nice to have you on. Thank you very much. Uh, I would love to start by asking you how things are going for restaurants in England, um, partly because it's good to set the scene for where you are, but also because I think mm-hmm. sometimes we paint the restaurant industry with this like one big brush. And yeah, brush, and so I'm curious yes. kind of what's going on in London to start maybe. Well, I, I think the one big brush thing really is quite fascinating. Yeah. Because actually what was, what was intriguing, I think, for most of us uh, is that when the whole mess of the lockdowns came and the various government initiatives, we were incapable of speaking with any kind of coherent voice. <laughs> right. And that's because the hospitality industry that everybody talks about, which currently includes everything from a, a, a sort of a sandwich truck on the street outside right the way through to a well, to McDonald's, uh, you know, right. the, the, one of the biggest companies in the world. Right. And I think we then have very, very different elements within the sector yeah. uh, of the ways different things have responded. Yeah. Um, there's a real problem with people effectively just turning away from the industry. Mm-hmm. So estimates between a third and a half of the people that were in it have gone and they're not coming back. Mm-hmm. It's obviously exacerbated by Brexit in the UK because many of our staff came from other countries and they've now sort of decided not to not to come back. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but we really are, we're hurting for good people. Right. Um, so there's staff uh, shortages partially. Yeah, yeah. Very, very much, mm-hmm. very much. Um, we've got, uh, uh, as I believe, I imagine everybody does, a cost of living crisis, mm-hmm. but that means that the costs of everything for the restaurant have gone up massively. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think one of the sectors that, uh, and I I do believe it to be a a subdivision that needs sort of talking about separately, Mm -hmm. uh, is is fine dining. You'll hear me saying that with the best that my English accent can do of actually putting enormous (laughs) quotes around it, because it's such a ridiculously loaded term that we've said so so many big things about. But actually, Mm -hmm. that part of it is arguably the most financially and in business terms, unsustainable part of all of it. Mm -hmm. Tim says another problem is that a lot of these restaurants have started paying more than ever for rent, sometimes over a million pounds. Their expenses are high. And they were just about balancing all of it until COVID. And then suddenly the price of everything is jacked up by about 50%. You can't find any people. And the entire potential audience are sitting at home wondering, you know, where the next paycheck's coming from. Right. So the, it's, it's, a, it's an awful, awful perfect storm mm-hmm. for that part, that sector, that small part of a very large industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so I'm going to ask you about sort of like this like upper gilded tier of this industry. Um, uh, let's address some news. So yeah, Noma yeah, announced that it was closing its doors about a month ago. I think it's fair to say that people, at least food journalists, are in a state of soul-searching about, like, the state of fine dining. Um, We've talked about Noma on the show before, but can you give us a quick rundown of, like, what it is and why this news is important? Uh, I mean, it's it's the top restaurant in the world by pretty much any metric uh, and has been for years. Um, It took over the position that had previously been occupied by El Bouilly, uh, which was Ferran Adria's place, Mm -hmm. uh, where you you couldn't get a table legendarily for a sort of six-year waiting list. Um, And his was the same. I think his... He was less about molecular gastronomy and more about hyper-regional and foraging and things like that mm-hmm. that later became sort of more cool. Yeah. But he, he kind of led the whole pack. 
there were some sort of early controversies around the fact that the way restaurants like that run, so many people want to work there, mm -hmm. that they were using large numbers of stagiaires, unpaid interns, effectively, right, right. Uh, running most of the restaurants on that basis. And we'd often, people had said, once they start to clamp down on that, that that's going to really put them into a, into a bad spot. Mm -hmm. uh, equally, I think... Um, in London particularly, uh, basically anybody who's writing about food has just stopped bothering to say that somebody once worked at Noma right. because literally everybody did. I think my mum did a stage at Noma at one point. <laughs> I mean, it's, that, it's really that, it's that mundane. Yeah. Uh, but it, that was that was quite a huge thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're, if you're at that echelon and you're um, sort of one of the most influential, probably the most influential restaurant in the world and the best restaurant in the world, you don't close because... It doesn't make sense financially. You don't close because of a financial problem. Do you think that he just like didn't want to keep doing it? <laughs> I, I think he's been quite he's been quite careful in his releases to say that that he he, fa he found it unsustainable. Yeah, and morally unsustainable. Right. And I and, and I don't think he specified when he meant unsustainability. I don't think he I don't, I don't think he was specific about the fact that you know, he, he couldn't afford it because there will always be people who can afford it. I think it's precisely that. Yeah. If anything, I think he said it wasn't financial. Yeah, yeah I, I, I think that it's precisely that, I guess, almost a moral conflict, mm -hmm. which is, yes, it's going to continue to be affordable by richer and richer and richer and less and less relatable people. Yeah. Um, and perhaps that's not a position you want to be in. Yeah, yeah. Let me pause here to say Noma finally announced that it would stop using free stagiaires last October. Tim says this isn't the reason Noma's closing, but the fact that it was ever an issue, it's something to think about. Even a restaurant at that level was cutting costs on interns. Um, I, I, I think that the, the Noma thing was inevitable. Mm -hmm. um, and it's kind of, it's an interesting figurehead to hang the argument around. Yeah. the wrong. Would you say the wrong figurehead? It's, I, th I think it's, it's kind of a figurehead. I don't think it's right or wrong. Right. It's just there. The most important restaurant in the world is closing because it finds itself sort of physically and morally unsustainable. I, that, I find, is... That's a, that's a good thing to hang on. Yeah. That makes us ask the right sort of questions. Right, 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 right. The reason we care about Noma in the context of the global restaurant industry is because it's expensive to run a restaurant the way Rene Redzepi does. It takes a lot of labor to go out and forage those sea buckthorn berries and to ferment miso out of local peas and to have enough waitstaff to anticipate a diner's every need. And since Noma sparked a generation of restaurants that are trying to emulate it, you could actually say that it's popularized not just a food or a method, but it's popularized running a restaurant in a very expensive way. But if you aren't one of the top restaurants in the world, you can't afford that right now. You've got to pay that million pound rent. And now you're foraging local berries and fermenting stuff to stay competitive, when really... You just need to make ends meet. Just to define terms, when we say fine dining, what do we mean? Like there's there's Noma, and then what's below that, and what's below that? I I, I think fine dining in the sense that most of us, I, I'm predicting the death of it. Where people have been doing for years, uh -huh. and there's no few because there will be. There will be expensive, good, high-quality dining across the world as long as people are cooking and there are people with money. Right. Those two things will come together, and there's nothing wrong with that in any way whatsoever. Right. There's a model of fine dining that's around control and circumscription of the, the diner's experience. Mm -hmm. uh, it's very much about the chef, a single individual artist. Mm -hmm. Instead of going 
in to experience the hospitality of a venue. You're going to see the performance of an individual. Right. It's much more like having, you know, I'm, I'm going to go and have a private concert with Madonna mm-hmm. uh, r- rather than I'm going around. <laughs> Madonna's invited me around for a bacon bath. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be you know, the best experience of my it life. Wouldn't it just? <laughs> wouldn't it just? It would be. I don't know. It, it, it's it's become performative. Yeah. Is there? Are you able to give examples? Would you be willing to give an example of of that of a performative place? Yeah. Actually, no, no, I, I, I wouldn't. And this this is an interesting point. Mm-hmm. Um, for for a while now. Uh, Personally, I can afford to do so. Mm-hmm. But when I go to restaurants and I can't really write a good or a positive review, I often leave the restaurant, tear up the bill and don't claim it. Right. Uh, because it seems the fair thing to do. It's my industry. I, I like it. Everybody's trying to keep you know, keep alive and keep afloat. Do their best, yeah. Um, but I've just torn up too many mm. for 14-course tasting menus. Right. You know, and, and, and it's just... It's it's warped what's going on. Yeah. But I was able to actually get around it at one point by writing a review that was based on the visits to four different restaurants right. that were so bloody close to each other. Mm-hmm. It didn't even matter. I mean, <laughs> and it was the same experience I guarantee you would have got if you'd gone to eight more restaurants in the UK in different parts of the country. Right. And the difference between tasting menus and fine dining. I mean, last time you were on, you said that tasting menus are like first week of first term at art college in terms of any kind of intellectual or emotional expression. <laughs> yeah, they, they totally are. They're, um, yeah. yeah. It is that thing where you turn up and they, and they give you your drawing tools, your paint palette, your darkroom, <laughs> and you go off, you take all your clothes off and go into the corner of a student and take pictures of yourself. Right. And, it, and it's just, yeah, it's just first year. It, it's, it's sophomoric. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it, when it starts delivering itself to you, um, you know, in small towns out in the sticks, mm. and not that that should in any way stop you being, uh, you know, a, 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 a great cook, but to apply a very rigorous idiom mm-hmm. over the surface of what you're doing can only be counterproductive. Right. Here are some things that Tim thinks these fine dining restaurants are getting wrong, besides being obsessed with tasting menus. The first is using tricks to justify the cost of the menu. I'm finding um, there are a lot of tasting menus in New York that still sort of rely on things that feel quite old-fashioned now, like foie gras and caviar and an oyster. Yes, this is part of the this is part of the financial issue we've we've got, which is which is still you've got to justify the high ticket. Right. There's a great deal of conflict in this. Quite a lot of UK restaurants at the moment are doing very, very deep sustainability mm-hmm. with like, you know, recovering of vegetable peelings and things like that mm-hmm. and zero-waste kitchens. And it's really weird when you, you find yourself going through one course where they've boiled all the leftovers, they've fermented them, they turn them into a garum or something like that, mm-hmm. which will then be poured over something. And they'll say, this was made entirely of our own kitchen waste and has cost absolutely nothing mm-hmm. apart from the work of 25 stagiaires. Right. And then three seconds later, there'll be a lobster tail with (laughs) foie gras up the middle. Another mistake these restaurants make is they rely too much on narrative. The menu needs a story and the chef needs a story. It especially annoys Tim when that narrative is out to make a chef sound noble. Like they're cooking a $75 dish somehow in honor of hospital nurses. There's deconstruction, like a restaurant will take apart a dish to remind you what it's made of. The menus are full of gimmicks. Okay, so this makes sense of, you know, as a business, that means that 
they're using ingredients that are expensive to make us feel that uh, we are, yeah, to justify the cost that we have. And we know, Uh ooh, caviar, Mm. that's expensive. Ooh, langoustines, whatever. Then they need a bigger staff. They need Uh better management. They need Uh sort of like a hospitality energy. Everything sort of has to be perfect. So I can see how the, as a business, that might be unsustainable at these sort of lower than Noma Mm -hmm. levels. Mm. Yes, that's precisely it. Yeah. It's jacked up. And, and I, I, I wrote a, a, another piece recently about the real danger of very young restaurateurs getting into this. And it, I, I, th- I think that the metaphor I used was that they should really, you know, like an animal gnaws off its own foot to escape the trap. Right. They, they really need to do this. Yeah. Because, you know, these guys are coming out of culinary school with promise or they're coming out of a TV show they've been on. Mm-hmm. And backers will say, no, no, we're, we've got enough money here to invest in you. Right. You know, to get the million pen space in the middle of London. Mm-hmm. But it's going to have to be full every night and it's going to have to get Michelin stars because once you're in this game and you get the star, that is a multiplier. Yeah. So it's kind of a gamble on the star. Right. And they might not be ready. It's worse. It's right. kind of terrifying. Yeah. They've got staff standing around. Or they've, you know, they've, they've had to change an item on the menu because you can't buy it singly mm-hmm. and they've only got three people in that night. Right. You know, and you get to the end of it and you're, st- I know why I'm paying 300 pounds, because I can see all the people there who are, <laughs> right. who have to be paid. And I know how much it costs to, to launder a napkin. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, right. I know how expensive these, these handmade tables were. Right. And all of this crockery and cutlery you've had you know, designed and made in a small studio somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And I don't begrudge giving you this, and it, because I think it's the fair price. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In fact, it's often too low a price for what it is we're actually getting. Yeah, that's so interesting. But at the same time, it's just too much. It's just stupid because it's just your tea. Right. And that's sort of, we'll get into what would be a better way for them, but that seems unique to this time in that like we're creating sort of like young stars out of chefs that are brands. Yes. And, And we're pushing them into there's some very interesting questions around business modeling at the moment. Mm. Because I think when you when you get to a point whereby you've got financial backers who aren't in the kitchen with you. Right. They need a business plan right. to tell them what they're going to get for their investment mm-hmm. at various points down the line. Mm-hmm. And the minute you start getting into that, that's where the trap begins. Right. But if you think about all of the great three-star restaurants in the world, mm-hmm. they all started when you know the head chef and the head waitress fell in love and quit the <laughs> restaurant they were working at and went and opened a really small place on the edge of town. Mm-hmm. And they set up, people came they worried about whether they could put the prices up a little bit, and then they did. And then people didn't stop coming. A few more people came. They changed the menu a bit. Mm-hmm. They moved up. To, you know, and by the time they've been doing it for twenty years, they've got a Michelin star. They've got a really nice menu. Right. They're changing things all the time. That's a model whereby you can get to the end of that. You can put a lot of expensive tablecloths down and say, actually, you know, if people do want to fly here in their helicopters, they're more than welcome to do so, and that feels justifiable. Yeah, yeah. You build up to it. So, okay, so Tim, in your recent column, you advocate, as you just said, that restaurateurs go back to this simpler way of running things, at least in the beginning. I, 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 don't, I don't feel I'm advocating mm. it. I'm, I'm really seeing it happening. Yeah. I guess half a dozen places are on my board at the moment where, so, so a, a little bit of background information. Mm-hmm. In, in the UK, we obviously have lots and lots and lots of pubs. Mm-hmm. And a pub often has upstairs rooms. And, you know, and, those, and these rooms, people are finding these rooms and putting great restaurants in them. Yeah. Right. I've seen some quite old chefs sort of closing up their million pound a year rent restaurants and going, no, that's fine. I'll, I'm, just, I'm going to open a pub in the country or I'm going to take over a pub in the middle of a city that nobody else wants. And those restaurants are putting out good food, better food? Well, it's, it's still great cooks, 
making great food, putting it out at a price that the customers will afford. Right. There's no sort of su- supervailing model imposed over it. There's no there's no idiom in which they've got to deliver. Right. There's nobody saying, look, you know, this will only work really in the business plan if you get a Michelin star. Yeah. And there's also sort of like a, I don't know how um, sustainable this is, but there's sort of like a pop-up culture. Oh, vast, yeah. vast pop-up culture. Right. Because I think what's what's happening now is nobody wants to take the risk of doing it without it being a pop-up. Right. Gosh, did you know in the last, probably the last half dozen reviews I've done, mm-hmm. now I think about it, there's been some kind of slightly snide comment that this feels a bit like a pop-up. <laughs> and of course it does. It is, it is what they're doing. Yeah. God, God, you've spotted that, not there me. There we go. <laughs> that's re- that's really irritating. <laughs> Sorry, that's not irritating. That's really collaborative. There we go. It's collaborative. We're here together. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And you know, and, and places that are that you know, you know, they're they're there for the duration. Yeah. But they've got that kind of yeah. You know, we're going to grow gently, like we're. I, I went to a place recently. One of the two backers and owners of it, mm-hmm. and a, a chap my age was actually out on the floor. You know, dealing hash off the wrist. Mm. He, was, he was he was putting out plates, <laughs> yeah. and, and probably something he probably hasn't done in in three decades because he's been behind a desk running successful restaurants. Yeah. Uh, so I think that people are putting that stuff back into it mm-hmm. and realizing the value of that. That's exciting. Yeah, yeah, it is. Do you, Tim? Um, I'm curious. One of my last questions is just like, in your mind and for you, what makes a restaurant good? <laughs> and I know we're talking about you know from a taco truck up to Noma here, and that like there are different ways to sort of measure goodness or quality at, at different levels. But what is it for you? For me, it's hospitality. Mm. Uh, so, and and some sometimes, particularly when talking to, to to English people, you have to sort of explain that. Mm. <laughs> uh, I mean, for many cultures, it's it's ingrained. It's kind of it's like a it's a religious and cultural fundamental. Mm-hmm. That you know, if 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 somebody's outside your door and, and and they require food, shelter, sustenance, anything at all, it's your you know it's your religious duty to do that for that person. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we kind of don't have that in Northern Europe, which is which is a bit of a shame. Mm-hmm. Um, but th- that's where the, the magic comes in when you go into a place and they greet you at whatever level, mm-hmm. whatever kind of place it is, from the crummiest to the richest, mm-hmm. but they reach you with a sort of level look in their eye that says, okay. You're in my hands now. While you're in my hands, I'm going to make sure everything is as lovely for you as I can possibly make mm-hmm. it. Is that okay with you? And you go, yeah, that's okay with me. <laughs> and then the amount of money that changes hands, that's fine, negotiable, no problem. Mm-hmm. The quality of the food that's delivered, you know what? We can live. It's fine. <laughs> you know. But but actually, I've come in for the evening and I go home thinking, those people really looked after me. That was wonderful. Right. And that's it. That's what you want. Wow, I'm really surprised that you say the quality of the food. <laughs> no, it's, it's it's it is so true. I I just uh, I've got a review coming out next week mm-hmm. uh, of a place. I must have driven past it on the way to the airport yeah. to go and judge other restaurants in other countries <laughs> a thousand times. I never really noticed it, and it's a tra- an old nineteen thirties transport cafe. Mm-hmm. Like a, what you'd probably call a truck stop. Yeah. Uh, it's so it's you know, designed to feed drivers 24 hours a day. And I went in and it was magical and the people were lovely and it was great. And the food was utterly average, <laughs> which is which is exactly what you expect of a of a trucker's fried breakfast. And what you wanted, yeah. Yeah. Hell if I'd gone in there and somebody had piped avocado puree around the outside of the plate, <laughs> I'd have I'd have worried. Yeah. But no, no, no. It was it was a it was a greasy sausage and a couple of eggs yeah. and it was yeah, it was great. Yeah. It was that was lovely. Yeah. 
Yeah, hospitality with a small H, mm-hmm. not the capital H, the business. I mean, the little H, hospitality. That's good. Yeah. Okay, Tim, let's see what happens. Um, please come back. And uh, this is <laughs> Absolute pleasure. such a delight. Anytime. Okay, thank you. <laughs> Speak to you soon. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. We've put a bunch of Tim's columns on this topic in the show notes. He has been talking about all the ideas we discussed today for a while now. Also in the show notes is a link to a special discount for an FT subscription that is also at ft.com slash weekend podcast. Next week, we are speaking with the artist Nick Cave. He has a retrospective at the Guggenheim in New York, and I just really admire his work. It explores racism and police violence, and it's also vibrant and beautiful. It's many things at once. Then my colleague Nilanjana Roy comes on to teach us what makes a perfect book club and how to start one. One request, if you like the show, we would be super grateful if you could give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I know you hear this on all of your podcasts, but it really, truly helps people find us and means a lot to us. Write us anytime at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. The show is on Twitter at ftweekendpod. And I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I post a lot about the show on my Instagram. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here is my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our producer. Molly Nugent is our contributing producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Topher Forges is our executive producer, and our head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll find each other again next week. The latest episode of The Next Five podcast is all about AI and the business travel sector. I speak to Tim LaBelle, head of product for SAP Concur Spend Solutions. We'll have so much data that our travel will be safer. Shelley Fletcher-Bryant, VP of Advito. AI can certainly contribute to more eco-friendly travel practices. And author and public speaker, Theo Lau. AI can help us predict when it will be a peak travel, more delays, cancelled flights. Listen to the full episode of The Next Five wherever you get your podcasts. Enjoy.